You're listening to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast, a podcast for psychotherapy group practice owners where you learn the business side of running a group practice. I'm your host, Maureen Werbach. This episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes is a practice management and EHR software that helps behavioral health professionals manage their practice with confidence and efficiency. I've been using Therapy Notes in my own group practice for about five or six years now, and they're hands down amazing. They've got a scheduling and to-do list that is so easy to look at, a notes template that is amazing and exactly what you need, billing that has accurate reports that you can use, credit card processing system, a client portal that's constantly being updated, security, and tech support that is amazing. You can call and actually talk to someone right away. If you're looking for an EHR that can give you everything you need to run your group practice smoothly, try Therapy Notes out by going to www.therapynotes.com forward slash the group practice exchange and you'll get two free months to try them out. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Group Practice Exchange podcast. I have Becky Stone with me today. She's a mental health professional and a consultant for other mental health professionals on all things ESA. Hey Becky, how are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you, Maureen? Not too bad. Um, I'm excited to talk about this with you because this is actually one area I often interview people in the group practice business realm and um, a lot of times I, I know a lot about the topic areas to begin with, so um, I feel like it, it makes it a little easier in terms of the questions I can ask. This is the first time I think that I am um, talking with someone, and this is like an area that um, I don't know a lot about, so I'm really excited to talk with you, and I know group practice owners listening are, are going to enjoy this episode, so thanks for coming on. Awesome. Yes, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's start with... Um, you. Tell us a little bit about you, what you do, how you support mental health professionals in this arena, um, and then we'll get to the questions. Yeah. So I am Becky Stone or Rebecca Stone, um, and I have a private practice uh, called Stone Counseling and Consulting Services in the general sort of Orlando area of Florida. Um, And I sort of fell into emotional support animal work when I was working on a college campus. Um, Of course, we've probably all had college students who have reached out and asked for an ESA letter for living on campus. And that's how I fell into this. Um, We started having some ESA requests on campus um, for students wanting to have their their animals move into the residence halls with them. And we didn't really know exactly how to respond to it as a campus. Um, So what we ended up doing was getting an amazing task force together of all different professionals in these different departments like housing, public safety, disability services. Of course, I was the representative for our counseling center. So we had all of these amazing staff um, coming together with all of these different perspectives. So we all sort of figured out this emotional support animal thing (laughs) together. Um, So I was so fortunate to be able to have all of those different perspectives. Um, And of course, we put together a full-blown animal policy for the campus. We were technically a pet-friendly campus, but we recognized through this process that we never really put forth any rules um, or regulations or policies for the campus around service animals. We also had a lot of service animals on in training um, from local organizations that students would have on campus um, and so on and so forth. So we really put together a really comprehensive um, policy. And when I moved over to private 
practiced, I realized a lot of people still had questions about ESAs because it's still a relatively new thing. Um, and there aren't a whole lot of um, programs out there that provide guidance on it. So that's what I added to my consulting part of my practice. Um, and now my goal is to help uh, practitioners figure out this ESA business and be able to add these services competently and confidently to their practice. That's awesome. I love how that all started. And it sounds like it was a really um, fun and I, I, I just love being a part of new things that are being put together. So for me, that sounds like such an awesome opportunity to be a part of something really new at a university and be a, a integral part of the decision making of that. That sounds really awesome. Yeah, it was so exciting. You know, at first it was a little overwhelming and scary, but once you really got a handle of what this whole ESA business is about, um, it really wasn't so scary. You just yeah. had to get some knowledge and, and have some guidance on it. So I want to ask, I think one of the most basic questions someone can possibly ask about this, um, and, and I, I've kind of pulled some of the questions from our Facebook group um, because people talk about it a lot as group practice owners. Um, and so I'm going to start with, uh, the most basic one, which is um, how are emotional support animals different from service animals or uh, therapy animals? Um, what makes them, what makes it different? Cause I know people like interchange them and use them. And I, I know that they mean different things. And so mm -hmm. I think a great place to start is just to sort of define what an ESA is and how that differs from a service animal um, or a therapy animals or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so ESAs are essentially, um, if I water it down, pets with benefits. <laughs> so, I love that. Yeah, so, you know, people have pets and they can be any type of animal, right? Um, guinea pigs, rats, snakes, tarantulas, cats, dogs, right? The works. Um, so pets are essentially, you know, pretty much allowed in your own residence or on your property, um, but really aren't allowed anywhere else unless they're a, a restaurant, for instance, that's designated as pet friendly on their patio or things like that. So pets really aren't allowed to go anywhere else. Um, they are just sort of there for companionship. Um, the pets with benefits <laughs> where ESAs come in is emotional support animals are um, actually prescribed, and I'll kind of air quote prescribed because we as mental health providers, we oftentimes are not the prescribers unless yep. we're psychiatrists or doctors. So it can feel kind of funny to use that term, but that's what the legal term is. So we prescribe emotional support animals to someone who has a disability where this animal alleviates one or more symptoms associated with this disability. And the disability needs to significantly impact one or more of their daily functions. Um, so that could be sleep, you know, we need sleep to be able to function. So if someone is unable to sleep unless they have their animal present, that could be considered a disability, for instance. Um, so essentially, person has to have a disability, and they need to be able to identify that this animal alleviates one or more symptoms. Um, and I always prefer that they bring this up on their own. You know, yep. we don't want to lead them and say, oh, does this animal help you with your sleep? <laughs> we want to make sure that it's really genuine. So that's really what an ESA is. They allow somebody to have essentially alleviation of symptoms associated with their disability. And with that, they are allowed as reasonable accommodations within housing, so your primary residence, um, as well as in some cases, air travel, so that you can better get to your destination or um, live out your daily activities where you're at, um, where you're traveling to. Um, 
So that helps alleviate some of the financial burdens or the breed type and restrictions um, where, you know, certain apartment complexes, for instance, might have, you know, size or weight or breed restrictions. Um, because it's a housing accommodation, it eliminates those barriers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so then from there, we've got therapy animals in the office that are allowed to be within the office or facility, you know, visiting a hospital or things like that with a trained handler. And then you also have service animals, which are required for daily activities. So they're trained specifically to perform specific tasks or work for somebody with a disability. Um, a really poignant example is a seeing eye dog, right? Mm -hmm. We recognize that they perform very specific tax tasks. They are highly trained in order to allow that person to access every area of life um, where uh, an individual would typically be able to access. That makes sense. Yeah. So can you um, just, because I, as I'm listening, uh, again, like I said, this is not my wheelhouse. I get the difference between service animal and support animal, emotional support animal, mm -hmm. therapy animal, and emotional support animal. I, what would be a um, more clear difference between those two? Sure. I get, like th therapy animals are ones that like, we have, you know, we don't have one in our office. One of our therapists has a therapy, I think two therapy dogs. I, we just don't have them in the office because of our uh, lease. Mm -hmm. um, but she went through some sort of training and her, her dogs went through some sort of training to be um, considered therapy animals. But I guess mm -hmm. what kind of disting distinguishes them in terms of maybe the training that they get um, between it being an emotional support animal and just a therapy animal in the office? Yes, that's a fantastic question because a lot of times people unfortunately interchange emotional support and therapy animal labels. Mm -hmm. um, so the therapy animal, sometimes called a facility animal, <laughs> there are some other labels for those too, but in general, therapy animals are used by a mental health professional or a trained handler um, and the animal actually has to go through um, training. So that could be specific training in terms of, you know, good uh, canine citizen. Um, it could be a, a program like pet partners and things like that, where they're looking at specific behaviors, temperament, um, the ability maybe to sense when somebody is um, in some sort of distress and be able to comfort them in some way. Um, so they have more specialized training to be able to perform those tasks. And they are for um, serving as therapeutic support for multiple people. Okay. So that could be a mental health professional who is working with clients in their office and they're seeing multiple clients and each client has the ability to um, access that therapy animal if they'd like as part of their treatment. With emotional support animals, it is specific to the individual with the disability. So there, it's their pet who has been prescribed to them for accommodations. And unfortunately, emotional support animals don't have to have any kind of specific training. Um, so this is where some of those news stories come in, where it's, you know, emotional support animal dog bites, you know, other passenger, um, right. because they don't necessarily have to have that training. And of course, animals can get overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, maybe they're not, you know, having the best temperament. Um, so unfortunately, what we're doing is we're assessing the individual only and not the animal. 
So we are checking to see, does this person qualify for a disability? Do they report that this animal alleviates one or more symptoms associated with the disability? Okay, cool, I will sign off on the letter. Um, in no way are we actually assessing the animal itself because that would definitely be outside of our scope of practice um, since we are typically not animal behaviorists, animal right. trainers, anything like that. Okay, totally. that totally makes sense. So with... Um, staying focused on the ESA piece, Mm -hmm. how are there specific assessments? Um, Because I I see, um, I've seen clinicians who will write an ESA letter with no past experience uh, in writing them or any training in um, in being able to to write those assessments um, or write those letters. Is there um, first, I guess guess it's a two-point question, is are there specific trainings or um, the things that clinicians should do before writing an ESA letter? And then are there certain sort of assessments that um, they should be using when determining if um, someone should have an ESA or should be able to have a letter for an ESA? Yes. Um, so this is sort of an emerging thing and there's no one size fits all, um, but it's definitely a, a meeting of the minds of a bunch of different areas. So. Of course, making sure that you're doing your typical intake, your typical biopsychosocial and diagnostic interview. Um, from there, with determining disability, there's no one size fits all, um, but there is an instrument called the HUDOS 2.0. Um, so it's the World Health Organization's Disability Assessment, which helps determine the presence of a disability in different areas of life, as well as the severity level. So that's helpful in supporting any disability um, identification. And then you also um, could benefit from uh, a malingering or feigning assessment just to kind of cross-check and make sure that they're not, you know, saying what they need to say um, just to get their assessment. And then you also would really want to have a policy or procedure in place so that not only are you following these steps, but you're following them consistently. Um, You know, providers, I think a lot of times are really concerned about writing these letters because they don't feel competent or confident. So as long as you've gone through some sort of workshop or training that helps um, hone in on some of these basic skills that help you also identify a policy or procedure so you're consistent and you have some backup if there were ever any issues. Um, you can identify, yes, I've used these assessments. Yes, I've you know cross-checked with the diagnosis. The client has identified that their symptoms are alleviated, you know, and you've gone through this sort of um, comprehensive process, you're you're pretty good to go. Um, but as far as you know making sure that you've got that consistency, I think that's really key. Um, so that you know what you're doing, you know you're you're assessing for disability, you know you've got that diagnosis on file, um, and that you're going through sort of an education process for the client so that we're not doing harm. We're not just writing a letter and sending them off, you know, <laughs> saying good luck. Um, yeah. You want to make sure that you cover some information with them so that they feel prepared with what they're going to expect with an ESA. Um, do you have any recommendations for... Um, a training course for this for clinicians? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there are sometimes some pop-up workshops um, that can be coming up in your area. Um, I found most of those are sort of the high-level overview, kind of what we've already covered, you know, what are ESAs and those types of things. But they don't necessarily take a deeper dive into the assessment process or cross-checking with ethics, cross-checking with your landlord or your liability insurance. Um, so I offer a course that helps uh, helps clinicians go through that entire process so that they can really develop their own policy and procedure after looking at all of the information. On the surface, ESA work looks like it's pretty simple. Sure, I meet with the client, I write a letter, right? Yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot, a lot more little nuances in between that I think are really important that clinicians um, need to examine so that they feel fully competent and confident. They know all the information that they need to know. They've, you know, checked with their landlord. They've checked with their liability insurance, and they feel good to go. Um, so I offer that course online, and I also have a Facebook group for sort of the the general forum for Q and A. Um, so I offer that, and then there are sometimes some other providers in your area. You'd have to do a little bit more of a deeper search um, to see if there are any more sort of experts um, within your state. Okay, tell us what the name of your course is and the name of your Facebook group. Yeah, um, my Facebook group is the Emotional Support Animal Guide for Mental Health Professionals. Um, you should be able to find that just by uh, putting that in the search bar of your Facebook um, uh, platform. And then my course is called From Oh No to Yes I Can, Responding to and Evaluating Emotional Support Animal Requests. Perfect. I'll make sure to add those in the show notes as well. Um, what was I going to ask? There was something else that I was thinking of asking. Oh, what happens? Um, because I, I guess this is now where we go into kind of the group practice owner mode because mm -hmm. um, you've told us a little bit about what an ESA is, how people qualify for it, how uh, clinicians can become competent in um, assessing for that. But as a group practice owner, I, I know you talked a little bit about policies and procedures, but um, one of the big questions that people ask or group owners ask is, um, what happens if a client wants to bring an ESA into the office? I feel like it's, it feels different when you're a solo clinician and you sort of have all this control over. And um, it, there's less of a risk when it's one person, you know, one clinician in one office kind of making a decision to let one, one of their clients bring an ESA into the office versus mm -hmm. someone, let's say like me, who has 30 clinicians. And if any one of them at any given time, if they all think, oh, I'll just, you know, we'll allow this one. Um, that could be an instance of 30 random animals coming at one time. Yes. So um, w like, what are some things that you think about um, when, when I bring this up? Cause I feel like this is one of those big questions that where group practice owners feel like, ah, oh, I'm not in like full control and the idea sounds nice, but like managing all of these clinicians and their clients, you know, if they're each seeing 20 or so clients, that's like hundreds and hundreds of clients in a, in a week that could potentially be, bringing in an ESA, what do you think? Yes, and lots of potential issues that could pop up with that. Right? Yeah. So if, if we kind of look back for a minute, emotional support animals are only considered accommodations within the individual's housing and air travel in some cases. So essentially they don't have rights to go anywhere else unless it's an, uh, a place that's considered pet friendly, right? Um, so keeping that in mind, our offices are not necessarily designated as one of those areas where ESAs are allowed to go. Um, beyond that, we need to think about liability insurance. Are we covered if there's an incident with an animal? 
Um, does our landlord, does our lease agreement allow for animals on property? In most cases, I would venture probably not. Um, you know, beyond that, is, it, is there an animal relief area? Um, are there any potential allergies that could pop up either for clinicians or for clients that are in the office? A lot of times that's the biggest concern that I see people saying, you know, what if I have allergies or what if my clients have allergies? Then we could potentially be causing harm to another client that's in the office. Um, and then you think about the different types of animals. Since an ESA can really be any type of animal, what happens if you have a tarantula and a cat in at the same time, <laughs> or a cat and a dog, right? You have these predator prey type situations um, that could easily create a ruckus. Um, also considering that ESAs are not required to have any specific training or even any behavioral training. So if you have, let's say, a dog that's barking incessantly or that's chewing on your, your couch leg, you know, there are lots of potential issues that could come up that can be um, a disturbance to therapy. Um, not only, let's say, there's a dog in there that's, that's digging at your carpet, chewing your carpet, chewing your, your table leg, you know, of course, you're going to have some feelings about that yeah. as a clinician. And so then there can be some countertransference due to this animal being in therapy with the client. So all in all, there are a lot of, a lot of potential issues that can come up um, or the animal relieves itself on your carpet. <laughs> like, right. Lots of potential issues. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, if you just allow this one to come in this one time, then what happens when somebody else sees it? They want to bring in their animal and so on and so forth. So it can get out of control, I think, really quickly. Um, and so I think it's really important to have an animal policy in place just in general. Um, and I think that as clinicians, sometimes we feel a little bit strange about saying that an emotional support animal is not allowed in the office, um, if, especially if we're providing ESA assessments, right? But the, the ESA or the animal itself is not required for the assessment. So there's no reason for the animal to come in in the first place. But on top of that, you can very, very simply say, um, per federal law, only ser trained service animals under the American Disabilities Act um, are permitted within the office. And, you know, it's just simple. You don't have to go into all the details why, um, but certainly you can have some a long list of, of reasons if a client says, but I just want to bring in my ESA. Well, landlord doesn't allow it. Liability insurance doesn't cover it. I'm sorry. As a practice, we cannot take that risk. Yes. You know? So um, making sure that you are dotting your I's and crossing your T's sort of before getting into ESA work, I think is really, really important. I, I love all of that. I feel like that was a very thorough and clear explanation um, on, on one of the biggest areas of concern that group practice owners have when it comes to ESAs. So thank you for that. Um, yeah. I want to wrap up cause I know we're at the end of this. Tell people how they can find you, how they can get support from you. If, um, if they're looking for consultative services, uh, around this area. Yeah. Um, you can reach me a few ways. You can absolutely email me if you have any specific questions. It's Rebecca at stonecs.com. I have my website as well. You can fill out a contact form. So that's www.stonecs.com. So that's like Stone Counseling and Consulting Services. Um, you can find me on Facebook in the Emotional Support Animal Guide for Mental Health Professionals group. Um, and we'll go from there. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming in and, and giving this, this training. So, so excited that I was able to get you on. 
Yes, I appreciate being able to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Group Practice Exchange podcast. We'll see you next time.